Hi again, everybody. It's Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with another episode of Inside Curling. Before we start the show, we're very pleased uh, to let everybody know uh, that we are now part of the Sportsnet family. Kevin and Warren have been fantastic. Obviously, the people love it, uh, and it's been growing exponentially. And we've always talked about how can we make this really big. And, uh, of course, Kevin, uh, Sportsnet is the key to all of this. Well, yes. And, uh, well, for me... I guess we're new to the Sportsnet podcast family, but I feel like I've been part of the family at Sportsnet now for, gee, I guess it's got to be almost seven years now. So it's uh, it's been a fantastic seven years with Sportsnet, and now to be able to continue on and expand into uh, the podcast world is, is really exciting, and uh, it's an exciting time for curling with the Olympics on the horizon, and uh, yeah, and the, and the growth of this uh, Inside Curling podcast has been incredible. And, of course, going forward with Sportsnet will be, uh, will be really, really exciting. So now, Warren, we've got this deal with Sportsnet. Uh, don't make any mistakes, Kevin. We don't want to blow the deal, okay? And, <laughs> and Kev, Kev, you and I were talking when this came together uh, a few days ago that, that it came into reality. You and I were both saying, how now is Warren possibly going to answer 10,000 emails a week. <laughs> Warren, are you nervous? Because uh, you got a lot of work ahead of you. But what a great thing for us, Warren. Well, I hope we have that problem. Of course, Rod Paulson uh, helps us with a lot of that as well. So we hope that's going to be the issue going forward. And certainly we'd like to extend a thank you to Sportsnet for having the foresight to see where this whole thing could be going. And we think it will go. And the whole podcast world and the sport of curling is up and running, and we think it's going to be phenomenal going forward. All right, everyone stay sharp. Kev, don't make any mistakes. You know, I'll be fine. Let's roll out another show, boys. Here we go. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. The line's really good. Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, there you have it. Kevin, we got a new intro. You were really, really good. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Seven years ago, but that was sure exciting. The Players' Championship back in 2014. And I believe that was in Summerside PEI. Warren, was this all was this all made up, or was Kevin the guy? Kevin was the guy. He's been the front and center of the sport pretty much for the last twenty years up until his retirement. So, not surprised. Both of you are in the World Curling Hall of Fame, so we need your take and your opinion, Kevin, uh, about the Briars so far. Some teams are winning that maybe weren't supposed to, uh, and some are losing that weren't supposed to. What say you, Martin, about it? Um, we talked a, a couple of podcasts ago about the field having you know, 10, 11, 12 really good curling teams in it. And as we sit here on Tuesday morning, taping the show, there are 12 teams in the hunt for the playoffs. Amazing. Uh, a real fight at the top. And 
you know, uh, Kevin Cooey's pulling himself away from the field a little bit, but everybody else, wow, it's a, it is going to be a battle uh, coming into the weekend. I really look forward to it. What about you, Warren? What's, what's your take on what's happened so far? Things have more or less unfolded as I would have predicted. There's sort of three divisions or three sections that you can kind of look at. There's the front-running teams, the nine off the Canadian team ranking system. They're pretty much there, one to nine. And then there's four teams that are kind of just behind them, which would be probably Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and BC. A couple of those teams have been doing really well. On any given day, they could they could beat any one of those top nine teams. And then on the bottom side of the scale, there's five teams there that probably didn't have a lot of chance coming in and uh, aren't doing all that well. Kevin, there's some talk that no fans at the arena uh, aren't, aren't going to change it too much for the high-performance teams, but will it take away the nerves, Kev, of guys who are underdogs in this thing? Would it, would it be a little easier for them? I can only imagine back in the day stepping onto the ice, Kevin, with 15,000 people. Yeah, that's a tough one, Jimmy, because uh, most of the games that I would have played since way back in 1991 at the first Briar was in front of a crowd, and, and I just love a crowd when you make a big shot the rock stops after an angle raise or a double or something and the the crowd roars that's it's just so so important to an athlete and you, you might be right maybe maybe it's a, a, a it'll get rid of some of the butterflies but i think every athlete not just curling but any athlete if you can compete in front of a big crowd that's what you want you know just to hear that mm-hmm. roar of the crowd is just a wonderful thing do you think it makes uh, teams who are uh, nervous, Warren, is it going to make them less nervous? Or who's the, does it give an advantage to the front runners anyways uh, with no crowds? I think it's probably going to give the edge to the front runners for the most part without the crowds because I think the first time you go into a building and there's a big crowd there, it's just uh, it's a feeling like, as Kevin suggests, you can't explain. And the crowd always, uh, particularly with these Briar events, there's electricity in the building. And I can always remember we did the first Briar in Calgary in the big building in 1997 in the Saddle Dome. Mm-hmm. And talking to Libby Raines, who was the manager of, of the day of the Saddle Dome, after it, she says, you know, there's never been an event in the building like this except the Olympics. Our staff has suggested that the electricity that was generated by the curling fans was uh, only second to the Olympics. And I always remember that, and I think that's pretty much sums it up. It's, there's, there's an electricity in the building with the fans and, and their cheering. Uh, I never thought they'd be able to pull it off with the pandemic, uh, but the Scotties happened last week and we're in the middle of the briar right now. Uh, you can't talk about curling and, and the competition unless you talk about the ice. Kevin, you are, are going to give us your, your take uh, on the condition of the ice over the last couple of weeks. Warren, is it time to set a clock uh, for each end? Uh, you've always been a big advocate of, of trying to shorten up the game and we want to get your word on that. The Women's World's going to be played in Calgary. And what about the uh, World's Mixed Doubles? Uh, what's going to happen with that? Lots of talk this week, and certainly on our Facebook page, about television ratings. Uh, they were down, Warren, for the Scotties, uh, and I expect they're down for the first part of the Briar. Why is that? Is it curling alone that's suffering from this, or, or is it sports altogether? Uh, we got a guess, Kevin. Maybe we can get the real story on you, Martin, okay? Uh, your longtime lead, Donnie Bartlett, is going to join us. Uh, he's now coaching Team Botcher. Of course, he won uh, with you, Kevin. He had a long career. Uh, I, I, were you guys 89, 1990, right through to 2005, Kevin? Yeah, a long time with Donnie B. And at, uh, he would have some stories, but uh, he's a, t- a true gentleman. He'll keep the ones that uh, he shouldn't tell to himself, I hope. And uh, But I look forward to hearing all about it from Donnie B. He's a, he's a class individual and obviously one of the best curlers ever, but uh, he's proven himself to be a fantastic coach as well. So 
we'll uh, we'll have some fun with Donnie B. Yeah, one of the guys who was such a huge part of Curling Worm when you were running it, you, of course, have something to say to Don. Well, Don's always been a, a great guy to chat with at any time you run into him, always friendly, always personable, and I always with Kevin's team, the two Dons, Don Bartlett and Don Walchuk, and always had lots of fun with both those guys. Well, same guys, Don Walchuk and Don Bartlett, Kevin. Uh, they never did listen to you about having go to go back to the hotel right after the draws. They showed up in the patch, baby. Okay, <laughs> and and of course I I love those guys. They were great in there. The Briar Patch is a very unique thing uh, to the Briar. There's a history to it, uh, I, and I had the greatest ten to twelve years of my life, you know, doing that gig for ten days in the patch. And uh, we're going to talk about that as well today. So looking forward to that. Kev, let's get right to you now. Uh, let's talk about the ice over the last couple of weeks. I do want to talk about this because that you heard during the Scotties that the the conditions got a little bit flat, uh, maybe around the eighth end, seventh end, and very difficult to draw the button the last couple of ends during the Scotties. But here at the Briar, it's been much, much better, very, very good actually, and uh, uh, and that's indicative of Monday. At, and this is we're taping on Tuesday. Monday afternoon, uh, Brad Jacobs threw an outturn draw. I know everybody at home, of course, times every rock like me. And uh, his uh, his draw was fourteen point four seconds, hog to hog, right to the to the freeze. That night, Matt Dunstone throws draw to win at fourteen point seven seconds. So the ice has been very consistent, somewhere between fourteen and a half to fifteen, hog to hog to the button at the Briar. So I want to talk about the difference and why. So. Let's get a little technical here. So when it comes to the to flooding, flooding the ice before an event, there's an RO system, reverse osmosis system that's used. And you can, you can imagine that you're removing the impurities out of the water as it runs through the system onto the ice. If you flood at too fast of a rate, then stop me if, if it gets too confusing, but if you come through the system too quick, it won't remove all the impurities. And what happened at the Scotties, I was talking to, to one of the guys, is that the water was just coming too soon. They, they flooded too quickly and ended up getting impurities in the water, of uh, the flood water. Mm-hmm. And then for the briar, of course, realizing this, they flooded much slower and kept the, uh, the parts per million right down to almost zero. And therefore, you have a firmer surface. And what happens when you get impurities in the ice is that you can use pure water to pebble with. Right, so that's what people are going to think. Well, just pebble with pure water, be no problem. But underneath, you've got the impurities in the body of of the water of the ice. And what happens with impurities? They always go from an area of high concentration and they migrate into an area of low concentration, which of course, in this case, would be the pebble. So once that sludge, that impurities, floats up, migrates up into the pebble, you can imagine that the pebble's not as hard, and therefore, it's going to wear much quicker. And, there, and it gets kind of slippery on top, kind of greasy. And then the rocks will take off and they just kind of die. And that's what was happening in the Scotties. And you've noticed the briar, because the impurities aren't there, the ice is staying very crisp. And even in the 11th end, extra ends at 14 and a half, 14, seven can get you the T-line. So a very nice surface in the briar and it will be going forward as well. So fantastic job by the ice makers. Yeah, talk about that for a second, Kevin. Uh, when when we see it on TV, there's uh, I think there's, there's four sheets this year. Sometimes there's there's more sheets. Are they always all consistent, Kevin? Does it make a difference which sheet you curl on as you go through the week? They're pretty consistent, but every sheet will certainly have its own uh, its own slant or its own 
breaking points will be a little different and and uh, but but for the most part an ice maker say in this case Greg Owasco he's a fantastic ice maker his ice tends to be a little bit straighter and not that great big bend that a Mark Shurek gets Mark Shurek makes the ice for the Grand Slam of curling and he always has more late finish more snap at the end so every ice maker has their own characteristics of how they make the ice but from sheet to sheet, Jimmy, it's it's pretty consistent across the board. Absolutely. Uh, Warren, when we talk about the ice, I know over the years you ran these events for many, many years. And I remember you telling me one of the biggest uh, things you're stressed out about is that there won't be a big problem with the ice away from the ice maker. Was there one year, Warren, where stuff fell out of the ceiling onto the sheets? Yes, that was the 2001 Briar in Ottawa. And that is always a concern, particularly in an older building that... Uh, Things can fall from the rafters, and often what they do prior to starting to put in the ice is they try to clean that whole area up as best they can before they start, but that's always a concern. The ice plant and the power is a concern, and I think it was the 1999 Briar in Edmonton. One of the automatic uh, thermostats in the building shut off about 3 o'clock in the morning, and when the ice crew came into the building at about 6 a.m., they were within an hour probably of would have lost the ice. So those are always things that uh, are a worry, and the ice technicians have to keep a constant eye 24 hours a day on monitoring what, what is happening with everything in those buildings. So it's always tense. Uh, Kevin, if the ice conditions do change uh, from day to day, who do you see uh, that will be able to adapt to that better than other teams in this year's Briar? You know, the Wind Sports Centre in, in Calgary is such a modern and gorgeous building. I don't foresee that happening at all, actually. Um, I think the ice is going to be fantastic right to the end. Um, you've got the top ice crew. They've got eight ice makers, and they're all terrific at their job. So I, I'm not very worried about that. Obviously, experience, if things change a little bit. But I want to tell you one quick story. The 97 Worlds, talking about ice conditions, and I was in Bern, Switzerland, and the building didn't have walls at either end. Just wide open, just air. So you can imagine lots of birds flying through the building and you can imagine stuff that was falling from them and that was right onto the ice and the ice makers are kind of pulling their hair out because uh, it tends to be a little bit warm. That stuff right. that's falling, and of course. That, You're not talking of, feathers here either, are you? <laughs> we're not talking feathers. <laughs> so, so that was a fun world in, uh, in Bern 1997. Could you imagine the poor ice maker, Warren, going, okay, I think we got this handle. What could possibly go wrong now? <laughs> well, that building that Kevin's referring to, I, interesting enough, played in it in the World Championship in 1974, and it's open uh, at both ends, so the sun shines through. It's, it's all glass. <laughs> and uh, you could have some amazing things taking place in the afternoon when the ice got a little warm from the sun versus what was happening in the evening. So that was the old days. <laughs> I, I can't imagine the, the poor ice makers sitting go, we never thought a bunch of birds were going to come in and drop a deuce <laughs> on all the sheets. Uh, Warren, Warren uh, let's talk about, you've always been a strong advocate for shortening the games, and you want to talk about maybe it's time to put the clock on each end and not just for the game itself. Well, interesting, I think, if we look at what's been going on in Calgary at the start of the week, and this is partly because I think they were trying to get their legs again, get the feel out of them, but maybe in, in some instances they were just trying to bank time as well. So you saw a number of games where the teams pretty much ran the rucks up and down for two ends, and of course that's not uncommon in many cases as we get into the year that they'll do that to bank time for later in the game. 
So Kevin and I have talked about this, and I've been a proponent of saying, is it maybe time that we looked at allotting so much time per end and not giving you time for the entire game so that we ensure that that type of thing doesn't happen? And I guess I also, again, look back, if that's what's happening in the first two ends of a 10-end game, maybe it is, again, time that those games became eight ends. But a thought and a conversation point. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, well, I'm I'm all for uh, shortening the game and 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 just making keeping it exciting for the fans. It's all about the fans, and so yes, in this uh, Scotties and Briar, you've seen teams that run it up and down because it's ten ends. Um, most games in the whole world of curling are eight ends, so basically you got these two extra ends to run them up and back and save time. But is that exciting for the fans? And uh, I think there's a, a major problem with a ten end game. I don't talk to any top curlers that want ten ends. It's just not. In existence. So if you tighten up the draw to the button time and then go to time per end, eight ends, you know, you're, you're really tightening it up. And you know, the Gen Zers, they're, they're not going to watch a three hour, three hour and 15 minute game. They're just not gonna. Mm-hmm. So let's keep it down to two hours, two hours and 10 minutes to uh, close it up. And that'd be a lot more appealing. So I think you're bang on Warren with the uh, time per end. I watched uh, fellas. I watched Nova Scotia play on uh, Monday night. Uh, Scott McDonald is the skip and, and Paul Fleming has, you know, been a, a Briar mainstay for many years coming from the Maritimes. Both of those guys, Warren, got caught with uh, too little time and uh, it certainly played in to the rocks that they had to toss. They were running to the other end to jump in the hack and it certainly affected them. Uh, they're saying Scott McDonald's going to have a really hard time with, I guess he's a little deliberate, uh, you guys, uh, but he's going to have a difficult time with being under the clock or on the clock. Well, I think if we look in the last few years, the guy that's always running the clock to the limit is uh, Kevin Cooey, and he seems to somehow always manage to stay under it, but uh, I think he's the guy that has the most problems. Wouldn't you agree, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, he's notorious for, for running it right down to the last <laughs> the five rock, seconds. And, yeah, Kevin, will he'll always get it in. It doesn't matter what rule. He's a really smart guy. He can figure it out, but to make it per end that would tighten up the game no matter what and that's fantastic scott mcdonald i want to say something here so i didn't really know scott mcdonald until we were in one of the lupus bond spiels down in minneapolis and it's so much fun down there and so we're taking some flies out in the uh out in the uh, baseball diamond and uh so i i don't have that good arm anymore um and so we're catching flies out in center field right back by the fence and uh so i catch one i throw it in i get to about second base well scott catches one he throws an absolute bullet to the plate. Like, are you kidding me? Scott McDonald, I don't know if everybody knows this, he has an absolute cannon of an arm. He must have played some really high-level ball as, as a youngster because uh, it's impressive, you guys. It, amazing arm in Scott McDonald. I didn't know that. I didn't either until I saw it. <laughs> I knew you had a rubber arm. Yeah. That you could I, I do have a rubber second. arm. Yeah. But he has a rocket <laughs> ship. He, like, it's amazing. The pistol. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> Moving ahead, boys, let's talk about uh, Warren. Let's talk about the uh, women's world. They're going to be played in Calgary. I never thought they'd be able to pull off the Scotties or the Briar, but they're they're doing it, and, and it's not going to be a problem. This thing is going to – there hasn't been any incidents of of COVID. Uh, they, they've got to do a number of protocols with isolating in the hotel, et cetera, uh, you know, to temperature testing. Congratulations for them to pull this thing off. Talk about the world's women's. Well, that's great news, and uh, we, of course, announced that we thought that was going to happen last week, and a, a day later it did, so congratulations to everybody who made that a reality, 
And I think it's going to be in the latter part of May as far as uh, timing is concerned. The other event that uh, hasn't been mentioned a lot yet is the World Mixed Doubles, which that's also an important one to have happening this year as well because the Olympic rankings that are going to come out of it. And I've heard a little rumor that they're potentially looking at maybe that's going to go into Scotland at a later date, but they're still working and trying to find a, a site and location for that event to take place. What do you say, Kevin, about this? Well, you know, I sit on my deck and, and have a glass of wine and, and sometimes a birdie comes and tells me stuff and it's really cool. And the, you know, the bird came and told me about the women's worlds and that bird was really right. And, and uh, that same bird came by a couple days ago and mentioned the world mixed doubles. It might end up in the bubble too. I hadn't had owned my first glass of wine, so I, I got to believe the bird again. So um, I sure hope it happens. There's no, uh, been has been no announcement, but uh, that would be fantastic. You know, I'm just thinking about it for the uh, teams, the ladies teams, of course, uh, we talked to Carrie Anderson and she played the Scotties the next day she got home, she got to go home. But mm-hmm. let's talk about for a second here, if it's a men's team that wins the Briar and happens to be somebody who's really good at mixed doubles. You've got the Briar starting March 5th, going to the 14th. Then you get the Canadian mixed doubles, which that person or players on that team would be part of starting on the 18th to the 25th. So they can't go home yet. Oh, but then the world men's is up April 2nd. No, no time to go home between those events. And that goes till April 11th. And then you've got the, in the Grand Slam, you've got the Humpty's Champions Cup mm-hmm. starting April 14th. Well, we know from talking to the ice makers, it's only 60 hours for them to get the ice ready between the two. So they can't go home then to the 18th. Princess Auto Players Championship, April 20th to the 25th. Oh, no time to go home there. So can you imagine from probably entering the bubble on the second or third day of March, the men's teams that win the Briar won't leave the bubble till the 26th day of April at the earliest. Yikes. Wow. So isn't that amazing? Like, I'm so happy that the bubble event has happened. But can you imagine, that's quite a stay away from home for the the men's teams that win the Briar. And a ton of games. I I didn't calculate how many curling games that would be, but it's just a lot. But especially during that period of time when you get to be in two places, the curling rink and your hotel room. (laughs) Think about that for that period of time. You know, your personality, Kevin, and yours, Warren, uh, I would, I would say, well, if there are two guys that could handle these restrictions, it would be the two of you. I mean, you're, you're fairly low-key. I would go berserk. <laughs> I, would, I would go absolutely bananas. And when I think of who would, who would have trouble with it, Kevin, I think of Ben Hebert. Uh, you know, this guy's so social, so animated, loves to be around people. Uh, it's going to be really difficult for him. Yeah, there, and it's not just him. There's there's quite a few characters that that girl and that are high energy. It's it's hard to be more high energy than Ben Hebert. And and there's but there's lots of people like that. And you bet it's like a caging an animal. Like after a while, they go, I, I got I, I got to do something. So it's uh it's going to be interesting. Uh, it'll be fun to to uh, try to get somebody who does win this briar on to hear all about this because I'm really interested. It's been nothing that's ever happened before in the history of our sport. And uh, so it'll be really interesting to hear from the athletes, you know, how, how do you handle this, this uh, amazing amount of time? What would you do with your time, Warren? If, are you a reader or anything? Or, you know, can you play chess, backgammon, something? <laughs> how, would you, how would you spend your time, Warren, if you had to isolate, uh, you know, in your hotel? Right now, I would be answering emails and answering <laughs> questions on Facebook. <laughs> well, back in the day, if you were a curler. 
you know. You were around Warren before they even invented the typewriter. Never mind a, <laughs> never mind a computer. Say you were coaching the guys, Warren. What would you tell them under this, you know, crazy circumstance? Well, I think the key thing is you've got to try to find something to occupy your mind when you're away from the curling facility and, you know, we'll probably set up a bit of a routine. And I think that's probably the secret to it all is to be able to set up a routine so you become familiar with things and things start to seem somewhat normal. I mean, same things we've all been doing over the last year with this COVID issue. We try to set up a routine to make our lives look as normal as they can under difficult circumstances. You were instrumental uh, and, and vital and, and the main guy behind the growth of curling. Uh, you've been involved in it your whole life. Uh, you got it into the Olympics. You got the Briar and the Scotties to huge crowds from nothing. And, and of course, the wall-to-wall television coverage that there is of all curling stuff now with uh, the, you know, the Grand Slam and Sportsnet, who's been doing this for a while. Uh, but it's been declining more. And uh, curling has had ebbs and flows and maybe it's a little down right now. We do know this. The, the ratings for the Scotties was way down. Uh, and the Briar in their, their first week, I think, is down. Are we in trouble with this, Warren? Well, there's an interesting phenomena going on. And I'll go back to the Scotties. In the opening weekend, I saw numbers in that one that said it was down about 17%. But the sort of shocking one was the Scotties final was off 30% of what it was the year before on the official rating numbers. But interesting enough, not to select curling out of the pack at this stage of the game. Most of these sports, the big ones, have been facing the same phenomena, but no one seems to really be able to understand why that's happening when people are at home sitting in their living rooms and their rec rooms with probably not a lot of things to do. Uh, why is the television numbers on these events and some of the big ones, hockey, basketball, off from what you would normally expect them? NFL Super Bowl was off. And so I haven't seen or heard anything yet that gives us an answer for that whole dilemma. But uh, certainly it looks like the Scotties anyway. The final was not what we would have hoped it to be. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens this week if the Briar numbers follow suit or if, in fact, they do pick up as the week goes on. I think it's totally ironic, Kevin. I just would have assumed with people stuck at home the majority of the time and not socializing, not getting out, not traveling, that... Everyone will be watching TV, especially live events. Yeah. So ratings, how they work. Now, you know, I, I, once again, you know, if I had Donnie, guy like Donnie B with all the big memory here, he'd uh, correct me. But I think uh, ratings go per minute, a certain amount of time in a minute, and you gauge the amount of people uh, during that time, and then it's every minute for the entire length of the show. So what I'm worried about when it comes to ratings, especially on events where the first two ends, you're just throwing it up and back, up and back. You lose a lot of viewership because, of course, everybody knows, oh, it's a blank, and then it's a blank. So if you do turn away at that time, only a certain percentage turn back to the game. And so I think that's a major problem is the length of the game. And because of the length of the game, a lot of your first two, three, even four ends tend to be blanks. So that's a problem. I, I think it's a real problem in real life. So I'm going to be really interested when we get to the Grand Slams in April and with the 8N games, much tighter television to see what the numbers do. Because as we know, talking to Gen Zers, we've done it, Warren. Um, we did it a lot in uh, late December, early January, and th they don't like the idea of these long, 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 long games. So I think tightening up could make a difference and, and we'll see come mid-April. If it does make a difference, I, I honestly believe it will. Well, it's going to be interesting. I think a lot of it may have to do with the whole 
approach that we have today on providing events through television and the change that's probably coming to video streaming and how this is all going to work together and, and result in the end of things continuing much the same way as they were? Is it going to change a lot? I think, again, everything's going to become more condensed. And maybe that's part of the problem is uh, people just aren't prepared to sit and watch these things for three hours. I don't know. Very interesting topic, interesting discussion. I'm sure that's going to follow. Well, you know what? You bring up a great point, Warren, on the uh, the idea of, of streaming. So I've got three kids, and they vary in age quite a lot. But none of them, let me just make sure I'm right with that, Yeah, none of them have cable TV. They don't have it. It's not a thing. They stream everything. Mm. They're going to watch all these games, but it's not going to be on cable television. So I don't know, you know, around the whole country, what age that is and which ones have cable, which ones don't. It's kind of funny. You talk to a kid and, and say, uh, computer. Well, what's a computer? What, what, I have a phone. <laughs> I have a phone. What, what, what? Well, and I, of course you say computer and a guy my age thinks that's modern and, you know, and the young people, they just don't look at everything the same as us. And I think you're right, Warren, streaming is becoming so popular in the younger ages. And then you know, the over 50-year-olds still have cable and we watch it, you know, like we always have. You know, turn to the channel and, and, and watch the game and, and then if maybe flip to an Euler game and then flip to something else. And that's kind of the way, whereas the young people will be streaming it and they don't even have cable. So interesting discussion. And uh, I know there's some, some really smart people, much smarter than me, behind the scenes that uh, obviously are thinking about this and how to deal with it going down the road. I guess the key thing is over the next few years here, we're going to go through a changing world. And it's going to be a challenge because how you approach people with communications, whether they're probably over 50 or under 50, is today very different. And the blending those two things together, particularly with things like video streaming, is going to be an interesting challenge. And like you say, Kevin, it's above our pay grade. Warren and Kevin, uh, when I think Canada and uh, what makes me Canadian and, and, and one of the most popular events, or two of them that I think of, that really uh, uh, talk about Canadiana, and it's the Grey Cup and certainly the Briar and the Scotties. And I've never felt more Canadian than when in late November when I do watch the Grey Cup and now in, in March, you know, the end of February and March, watching our, our national championships in, in curling. The problem with the Grey Cup quickly is I've been to the cities where they have it. It's very convoluted. Uh, if you went in on a Wednesday to celebrate it, like a lot of people do, there's too much going on. You got to go to this night over here. This province is having a pub night. These guys are having a pancake breakfast. These guys are having a lunch. BC's doing this. And I think it harmed the Great Cup. The Briar and the Scotties, Warren, uh, and I'm sure you were a big part of this, has got it going on, man, when it comes to what, you know, socializing, which is a huge part of curling. And Warren, you got to give us a little history because I got some stories. The Patch was a brilliant idea because it's the only game in town when curling's on and everyone shows up there. Well, we're going to talk about the patch, but you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jim, you sang a little song for us that you thought was the greatest Briar Patch song ever. So I thought it would be probably I good did. today if, if we started off this little segment with your favorite Briar Patch song. Oh, Canada, come on, make tracks. The Briars coming to Halifax. Call the shots, scream and cheer. I skip her over here. Draw the button, throw the card. Hit the broom of your hurry heart. Go key a prior. It's a sure thing. Love this, Go Warren. Go key a prior. It's a sure thing. You know what? You're bringing me back. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Warren, but uh, that song became so popular. We, we would play it like two or three times an hour. Uh, some of the best Briars were down in the Maritimes. Got a little out of hand, Warren. Uh, I was a little hammered. 
uh, emceeing, and you walked in to see me standing on the middle of a table, getting everyone to sing the Nokia Briar. It's a short thing. And you came running at me, almost tackling me, going, Jim, there's a small uh, liability issue here. If you're walking around <laughs> tables and you fall, get the freak off the table, Jimmy. <laughs> Talk about the history of the patch, Warren, and how it all started. Yeah, well, back to that song again. That was, uh, again, one of the great ones. And our own Rod Paulson actually wrote the lyrics to that song. So uh, that's another little tidbit for our show. Yeah, Rod wrote the lyrics for the song. No kidding. Anyway, the Briar Patch goes back to 1982. And certainly the Briar, from its original happenings, I wasn't around for that, although you think I was, but uh, certainly when I came into the scene, there's always, there was always some kind of a, a drinking facility, a hospitality area that was associated with the Briar. But in 1982, the Briar was in Brandon, and the host committee there led by Don Pottinger decided that they were going to create a special room where the patrons of the Briar could go and enjoy themselves uh, following the games. So I guess after a fair amount of deliberation, they decided to call this little area the Briar Patch. And... Uh, some of you may remember that there was a kind of a nursery rhyme called The Soul of the South that was produced 100 years ago that had Briar Bear and Briar Fox going to toss Briar Robert into the Briar Patch, spelt B-R-I-A-R, not B-R-I-E-R. And that was sort of the idea that they came up with when this name Patch was attached to the Briar. It was from that nursery rhyme. And so that was started in 1982 in Brandon, very small. It was a room that held about 500 people. And uh, from there, the Briar went to, to Sudbury in 1983, and Sudbury actually put up a tent outside the arena, which was a very small arena, and this tent wasn't huge. It was about, held I think, about 1,500 people, but it was a bubble tent, and I'll always remember they had vacuum doors, so you could only get so many people through the door at one time as they were lining up outside. Or it would collapse. <laughs> <laughs> it collapsed, but it became very popular. And uh, by the time we got into 84, again, small building in Victoria, they turned the entire Victoria Curling Club, the uh, whole ice area, into the patch. And as the Briar moved across the country, started to move into places. I remember in 1985 in Moncton, the whole convention center attached to the arena was pretty large. And that was the first attempt to creating a patch that had any size. I think a lot of things uh, happened over time, too. If you go back to the old days um, with the Briar, the curling clubs in the area always were hosting something every night that the Briar was on, and you'd go from one club to the other and around and around and around, and sort of the Briar patch or the facility at the arena was not a big deal. But by the time we got to mm -hmm. the late 90s, there became a little conflict between the, the patch and the curling clubs because the curling clubs wanted the fans to go to their building, and the the Briar committee wanted the people to stay in a patch. So I can remember even there was a deal worked out for a period of time in the mid-90s where the curling clubs would now host a night in the patch versus trying to get people back to their club. But as the briar grew, so did the briar patch. And uh, initially, when it all started, it was done by the host committee, but Labatt were the sponsor back in the day of the 80s. And by the time we got to about 88, 8 or 9, they saw this whole thing developing and they wanted to become more involved with it. So they brought in a professional who was working for them, and uh, it was Your Show Productions, but Roger Powell was the key guy with them, and so he started operating the Briar Patch in the late 80s, mm -hmm. pretty much on behalf of Labatt's with the host committees, but he started directing the whole scene. Things changed a lot in 1994 with the association between Labatt and uh, the Canadian Curling Association, and as a result, they were no longer paying for people like Roger Powell to be part of the whole thing. So in 1995 in Halifax, um, we hired Roger, uh, actually to begin to run the patch in a similar manner that he had with, with Labatt. 
And as a result of that, in his professionalism, the thing continued to grow. And as we got into the bigger buildings, it got even bigger yet. The biggest, most successful patch ever that was held was interesting enough in Regina in 2006. And uh, the other challenge that we always had with the patch was it was assumed that if you had a ticket to the arena that you would automatically have a ticket to get into the Briar Patch. So it was right. very hard to bring in people from the outside. But as the thing grew and the costs grew, we're becoming more reliant upon we got to get people in here, uh, just not somebody coming in for a beer after the game if we're going to make ends meet. In 2006, we managed to convince the committee and everybody involved that the arena wasn't that big uh, compared to the buildings we had been in, that we're going to have to market the patch. So in 2006, we actually marketed the patch as a separate entity. It was sold as a separate ticket because we didn't think we'd have enough tickets in the building. Won't get into the details of that, but as a result, in Regina 2006, we had sold probably about three or 4,000 tickets, I, 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 by my memory, that uh, give you strictly entrance to the patch and, and not the arena at all. The result was in 2006 in Regina, that patch on three occasions had over 8,000 people in it. And it was, uh, as you may remember, Jim, it was just unbelievable uh, as to what was going on there. But we also had to invest a lot of money to make that whole thing happen. I remember we had Blue Rodeo for the opening night. And it was huge. Patch in Regina 2006 was very successful, most successful ever. We went into Hamilton 2007. It wasn't possible to continue with the same approach. We just didn't have the size in the building. And Winnipeg in 2008, we tried a similar approach. But by that time, we were getting some restrictions put on us by management with regard to what we could spend on the patch because people were nervous about it. And uh, we went in there, we took quite a gamble. We brought in Burton Cummings for the opening night, and I think $100,000 was the cost of that act. Yikes. It didn't quite perform as we had expected. The, the patch still did okay, but as a result, there started to be more fingers coming into how we were running the patch, and cuts started to happen. And unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, because of what happened from that day forward, the, the patch started to go downhill because the money wasn't being spent to make it what it was. And... Uh, while it still exists today, it never is or will again be like it was back in around 2005, 2006, back in the, in the glory days. Kev, I don't know, you, you, didn't, you, you didn't allow your players to go to the patch until you lost or you won. Or you, so you think, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably more the truth of it. <laughs> so you think. <laughs> yeah. I've got some phenomenal stories, okay, of, about the Briar Patch. I've never seen anything like it when, when I got involved. And I was there, Warren, in all those years. It was a great idea in 2006. Bernadette McIntyre and her committee came up with the idea of party gras. And party gras was maybe something that should have been hung on to and taken from patch to patch, but that was the theme of it. And uh, the whole city uh, was just behind that. It was, it was unbelievable, phenomenal. You remember what it was like. It was just crazy. Yes, of course. Yeah. We got to go to break, but before we do, because I, I, I could talk for hours about this, but my favorite was... Uh, you know, there were, there were five or 6,000 people in this patch that year, uh, one of these years. And, uh, you know, you had to have a camera and, and big screens and everything to see it. So I had a guy follow me around. I jumped up after one of the draws. That's where we filled in a bunch of time with, with the emceeing duties. And I was standing at the front of the room. It was huge, you know, because it held thousands of people. And a, a guy is walking up the middle. You always had these huge uh, center aisles, right? With a, that, right down the middle of the patch. And a guy's walking up from the very back. Crowd's starting to laugh. I'm looking around and I'm going, what's going on here? And as this guy gets closer and closer to me, people are laughing more and more and more. And he, just, he walks straight up. He's got a beautiful, you know, three-piece suit on. 
uh, looking great. And, and by the time he get, he just keeps coming right at me. And I'm going, what the freak is going on here? And when he gets up to me, he's standing straight in front of me. And people are absolutely going bananas. And he shakes my hand. I'm going, what's up, Scooter? And he goes, I just wanted to say hello. Uh, nice to meet you, Jim. I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> Great job. And he turns around, okay, and he is completely buck naked on the back of the... He had just pasted, Kevin, the front of this suit onto his body. <laughs> and he was... I'm talking, the package, everything was showing. He turned around and walked away. And uh, it was just absolutely the funniest thing I'd ever seen. The patch is great. The best fans in the world, curling fans, they come in to have fun. So we got to get to break. Uh, when we come back, we got a, our special guest, Kevin, your longtime lead. We're going to talk to Don Barton. That knocking at the door, okay, someone's trying to get into the show here, Warren and Kevin, and uh, really been looking forward to this, uh, our guest. You know, Kevin, uh, behind every great skip, there's a better lead, right, Kev? That's true. And behind every great team, there's a better coach, man, and uh, we're really looking forward to this guest. Uh, silver at the Worlds, silver at the Olympics, gold medal at the Briar in 91 and 97, and he curled with you, Kevin, from 1989 to 2005, all the way from uh, originally from Gander, Newfoundland. Would you please welcome Don Bartlett? How are you, Bai? What's going on, Don? Robert Ng, Bai. I'm doing real good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I'd like to do first, Donnie, is uh, I've kissed the cot, okay? And uh, the, the Newfoundland tradition, of course, you've got to kiss the cot. And I don't think Kevin and Warren have ever done that. So I think we should make them kiss the cot. I've kissed the cod. <laughs> Warren's kissed the cod. And I've kissed the cod as well. Oh, there we go. Oh, Lovely. Well, excuse me. You know, I love everyone from Newfoundland, uh, Donnie, but I hate that tradition. I didn't like that the first, the first time they made me kiss the cod. Donnie, how's it going? You're coaching. Uh, we're, we're doing this in the middle of the Briar course. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on. We know you're busy. Uh, and you're coaching Team Botcher. How are you doing so far? Give us your take on your team. Well, we're three and one so far, and we're trending the right way. The last game, the boys played really well, really against Madal. Obviously, one of the best ever. And uh, I'm stressed this year for some reason. Last year, it was uh, stress free, nerves, but uh, not much stress. This year, I'm stressed. I think I uh, I care too much about the boys winning, and uh, it's sort of stressing me out a little bit. But I'm hoping them well. Tell us what it's about, Don. Uh, this year, of course, with the pandemic, there's no fans. Explain to us what it's like. Compare. I mean, you curled for many, many years, and you curled at big events with crowds of fifteen to twenty thousand, but not this year. What's it like, Don? I think the boys are getting used to it. I don't think it would bother me if I was curling because you know, we've played big games and big arenas and and in front of fifty people too. So you get used to your, your surroundings and. Uh, I think the boys are adjusting well. It's a little different that, you know, there's great shots being made and, and uh, no crowd noise. That's the only different part, I think. You curled for many years, before we bring in uh, Kevin and Warren, because we got lots we want to talk to you about. You curled for many years with Kevin. Uh, tell us, first of all, how that all came together. Well, um, I think you got your dates a little bit wrong. 
Told you, Jimmy, that Donnie's really good with all the numbers. So here yeah, we go. I got him from Kevin, so don't don't <laughs> yeah. blame me. Okay. Yeah, no. Kevin's close on his stats, but he's off a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Um, nineteen ninety was our first year together. So I knew whoever won the ninety one Briar was gonna be the Olympic team. And surprising to me, Kevin didn't know that until after the game when we won the Briar <laughs> in ninety one. I thought he knew, but he had no idea, I guess. But so I wanted to get on. I, I was skipping at the time, and I knew I wasn't going to win skipping. I was. I couldn't draw. You put more than two in the house, and I had to draw against two or three. I'm dead. Too nervous. I'm always looking for the one to hit. Right. <laughs> so I knew uh, whoever won in '91 would be the Olympic team, and that's why I joined up with Kevin. They, they, uh, their, his lead moved away, and uh, Kate Park and I talked, and uh, they welcomed me to the team. Were you part of that team where you guys uh, got ice from the medical room so you could pour it into your drinks and lied that it was for uh, someone's swollen ankle? Was that where you, you had to be part of that? That was the story I didn't know. I didn't know that story. I didn't like Walchuk went away for a while and I came back with ice. I had no, I'm a beer drinker, so it didn't affect me. But uh, yeah, they came back with a pile of ice and I, I didn't really hear the story until uh, I listened to it on your show. I love that. So it's one of my favorite stories. It gave me an idea. You know, down the road. Um, talk about your days with Kevin before we get into some other stuff. Uh, Donnie, uh, we, we want to know. Uh, everyone loves Kevin. He's, he's been named, you know, the number one curler in the world. He's in the Hall of Fame. But we want to know, because uh, he can be cranky a little bit, Donnie, okay? Once in a while. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, careful, guys. <laughs> Give us some highlights of those, uh, those days that you curled with Kevin. Well, early on, he... Uh... You couldn't tell him much, that's for sure. <laughs> After about three or four years, he, he was he was really, really easy to get along with. I mean, if you did something wrong, and we all knew when we did things wrong, that, you know, he would give you grief, but uh, not much grief. He would give you a stare or something like that. But uh, like I say, the first couple, three years, Kate Park and I knew the game a little bit better than Kevin did, and, and Kevin didn't think we did maybe sometimes, but... <laughs> But after the first three or four years, we, we there weren't very many issues. If you if you did your work and put your time in, did, did lots of practicing, uh, Kevin didn't have any issues. And you know, we all tried our best. That's all you can do. Sometimes you can't, you, you don't perform. And uh, but uh, if, as long as you put in your time, did your best, Kevin was pretty happy. I thought. You know, Newfoundland's been on the map for a long time uh, in curling. Uh, take us back to your day, Donnie. Uh, what was it like back then? Were they were they under the radar back in your day, or even even before that? When did it get really big in Newfoundland? I only spent one year curling in Newfoundland. I was I think I was thirteen. Then when I was fourteen, I moved to Alberta. I think uh, Mark Nosley made the playoffs one year, and then after that, they got a little bit better, and then they got worse again. And then, of course, now with Guju, I mean, he's uh, the best curler in the world right now. So. Uh, uh, hopefully that turns into good curling for the the, the curlers behind him. They, they, and, and if anybody's from Newfoundland that's a young curler listening to this thing, keep going there. Keep getting your ass handed to you. But after five to ten years, and if you practice a lot, you'll learn. And then you'll be the next Guzier, hopefully. There's an ongoing debate. Uh, the format has changed o over the years uh, with the amount of teams that are in. Uh, we've got the split pools and some debating about whether – all the provinces should be involved or we or do we do a different thing uh, i'm sure you've heard some of that donnie what's your take on it now the way the briar was compared to when it, it used to be first of all with all the teams 
And what are your thoughts on do we have a team from every province or not going ahead? You want to see good curling, but you also you have to appease everybody. I mean, the, the fans are a big part of our sport. And a lot of the fans, they want to see every province. So I think we can do both. I think, you know, there are some provinces that struggle most times at the Briar, but it's part of Canadiana. It's having all the provinces there. As long as you get your top six, five, six uh, men's teams at the Briar, I have no issue whatsoever of having every province represented, all the territories, as long as you get your best teams in. Yeah, I think you're right, Donnie. I think that's really important to make sure that you, you cover the top teams so that young players coming up that are really quite good, but unfortunately live in a province where there's three or four other really good older teams, they need to have the opportunity to, to grow. And that's where I think the, the old way of doing it really held some players back. One of them, of course, now a four-time champion, Kevin Cooey. He could have been at many, many Briars, but unfortunately where he lived, he just didn't have much chance until, uh, until you know he had the opportunity in 2010. So it's, uh, you're right. I think it's important that we get the, the top teams a chance so that the young ones can develop, so you can uh, become the next Kevin Cooey, Brad Gushu, you name it. It's a challenge, but I think there's another thing we have to consider as well. Somebody asked me a question yesterday on the Facebook page of the young teams. He really liked watching the young teams that were coming up, the up-and-comers. And I said, well, unfortunately, the majority of the up-and-comers are in the Canadian team ranking system list 10 to 20. And because of where they live, you probably aren't going to see them playing in a briar under this current format for quite a while. So I think that's another challenge that we have to face going forward. And a lot of discussion about this, what the real answer to it is, I'm not sure yet, but I think something different has to start to happen in the next few years. But uh, we've got to be concerned about those young up-and-comers who simply aren't getting a chance to play until they're probably in their late 20s. Well, one thing that's for certain, Warren, is when you put this out on the Facebook group, <laughs> there's a lot of comments both ways. It's not clear. No, it's not clear. How to go forward, but you're right. We need to worry about the young ones. That's it's always been, well, I know Don and I talked about this at length over the last 20 years is worrying about the young curlers coming up because we lose too many of them before they can get to be good. And that's always been a, a concern of, of all of ours. And uh, so you're right, Warren, we do need to, more than anything, worry about our, our young players coming up. Donnie, so uh, everybody knows about Team Botcher. Uh, they're one of the best teams in the world. Uh, however, the last three years uh, they've been in the final, they haven't won, and you're the coach. Take us inside that conversation with these guys, Donnie, uh, and your role as a coach and what you've been telling them and how you've been helping them. Well, I'm, I'm there a lot for technical, which, of course, I, I learned from Jules over the years. I mean, best coach of all time, Jules Ochar. And they've been practicing a lot the last two months. Uh, they, they are ready. Um, the, the first game was a little, a, a little bit off, but you know, that, that had to do with a little bit of rust and, and first game in like three months, you can practice all you want until you get out and throw rocks on uh, during a game. That's when uh, it shows up. I had them practicing a lot of the hack board weight kind of shots because those are really important. I think I feel that the barrier to, uh, your big shots are your hack weight, board weight shots, and your runbacks. Those are your uh, the money shots, I call them. They got to be chomping at the bit. I know I would be. I mean, we uh, when I was playing with Kevin, we won our first prior and then went, didn't win again till till '97, six years later. So we came third, then second, then first in '97. So we did it the, the traditional way. It usually takes you a while to to get your wins, and then when the wins come, it's a little easier for some reason. 
Interesting question to ask you as a coach. And I know the role of the coach with a lot of these teams varies. So two years ago, 2019, you and I ran into each other in Kalamazoo, Michigan, as you were the coach of the Olympic gold medalist, John Schuster. And now you're working with the Botcher team. What's the difference between working with Schuster and working with Botcher? Are you approaching things the same way or is it a little different role? Pretty well the same, actually. Uh, I don't do as much technical with those guys. They have their own way of doing things. And I'm not even sure if they have their own coach, but I didn't do much technical with them. I do a lot of technical with uh, Botcher's team and uh, took a few things from Schuster's team to teach the boys, like how, how to practice, practicing both sides of the sheet, how to run it. So you, you know, you get as many rocks in as you can and better use uh, your, your time and everything. It's a slow process being a, a coach. I mean, anybody can show up and coach, but to be a good one, there's so many things that you, uh, you think you know and you don't. And I took a, a coaching course at the Savile Center to get my, uh, my level to be able to coach. And there's so many things behind you know, the game that you don't know about and, and how you can coach better. And I, it was a two days well spent, I thought. Hey, Don, when it comes to the, the, the throwing two draws, one on each side of the sheet, we talked about this on our last podcast. We've talked about it in the Facebook group. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, because you guys, I think right now are currently in this briar number one on the draw to the button stat, which is a really important stat, in my opinion, a really important stat. Getting that hammer gives you an extra six to seven, maybe even eight or 9% chance of winning each game. How do you handle it? Because we tried to talk about it last time, but of course, when you and I played, we didn't do it that way, a draw on each side. So can you kind of, I don't know, I don't want any secrets out of the bag, but but what do you concentrate on in that practice to be able to do that? So the first end, we just throw the rocks through, pick a spot all over the ice, edge of the 12, edge of the eight, edge of the four, right down the middle. And we just fire hits to get the rocks to the other end. And then the two guys that are throwing the draw to the button, they'll each obviously throw the most draws. The other guys will throw a few to get draw weight. We've already got our rocks figured out before we get there. So it's a huge advantage to have the second practice. That's for sure. Cause you know, you're still breaking down the ice. So the first practice we, we did okay. Uh, but since then we've got a lot better at breaking down the ice, making sure that all, if you're the first practice and you're a couple inches off your line, that could be two, three feet difference. So you really have to uh, get the ice broken down well to, uh, to be able to put it on the hole. We've had a lot of comments on our Facebook page about this uh, very factor in the last couple of days. Do you think this is the best approach that we're using right now, or could it maybe be changed? No, it's not the best. It's The team who practice second has a huge advantage. So how do we overcome that? Go back to the old way. I mean, the old way was pretty good. I mean, we're doing this because of the worlds, right? That's that's the reason why we're doing this in the Olympics. To a degree, I, I think, yes. And, you know, it, you know, if, if you want to go forward with this, I think you have to have – an advantage to the second team, whoever they're practicing, somehow give them the advantage. But then, of course, the team that's practicing first is not going to be very happy about that. So I think the fairest way is to have both teams shoot on both sides. So the first team practices with the intern and the second team practices with the outturn. That way it's fair for both teams. This way is not fair for the team who practices first. I mean, you'll, you'll get better at it going forward. But uh, right now, the team of practice second has an advantage. So with these 10-in games, are we throwing too many rocks? Well, the last two or three games, actually, the, the ice has been really good. It's, it's held up really well. The only thing you have to be careful, and I'm okay with this. Like, if you take, say, it's middle of the 12, and you throw the middle of the 12 and get to the button, fine. But 
if you have to start off edge of the four and throw a draw or middle of the eight to throw a draw, then it's a different time because you know, there's so many rocks thrown there throughout the game. The first half of the game's not so bad, but the second half, if you're in that area, you've got to make sure you're, you're adding a little extra weight. And I'm fine with that. It's very easy to have the ice all the, the, exactly the same from the edge of the 12 on both sides to the middle. I mean, that's, if you're throwing, you know, 14 and a half, doesn't matter where you throw it in the ice. I don't think there's much talent to that, but if you have to change your weight a little bit and be aware of where you are, that takes more skill, I think. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, Donnie B. You know, you mentioned earlier, and I want to go back a little bit here because you mentioned earlier how how strong Newfoundland has become, especially with, well, Mark knows where they start with and now Gushu going forward. But I think a lot of the reason that uh, Brad is so good has to do with uh, you bringing curling to the forefront with your bond spiel. I really want to talk about that, the Don Bartlett classic. I think, now once again, I'm going to pull out a, a year out of, out of me, so I could be wrong again. <laughs> but I think it started in, in 99. And what was the what was the mayor's name? He was a super nice guy, the mayor of Gander at the time. But I just want to know what you think. Like that was one of the best events on the tour for many years. But the results of you putting that bond spiel on and how strong Newfoundland has got in curling. Fred Rose is the guy who started it. It was my name. I, I didn't do a whole bunch to, to, with it. Fred is the guy and, and his committee. I mean, they did all the work getting all the teams there. I mean, we had the, it was the best uh, spiel on tour, I thought, for about five, five, ran for eight years. And anybody who was anybody was there. You know, it was the second biggest purse on tour. It was 20000 to win. Only the slams had more money. Before it ran, I'd, all I said was, make sure we have the best rocks and the best ice maker. So they brought in Tim Yo and they brought in, um, Kevin would know where the rocks came from, but and I made sure that if we don't have that, I'm not going to do it. And then right away, Fred, okay, he looked into where we're going to get the rocks, and and uh, and he brought Tim in, and uh, great ice every, every year there. It was fantastic ice, fantastic conditions. And if you look at the winners, it's the who's who of curling the eight years that it ran. So Fred Rose, of course, a great guy from, uh, well, now he lives in, in Ontario, but from Gander, Newfoundland. So we needed really good rocks for the Grand Slam of curling. And we didn't have any rocks. And the West Winds Curling Club was shutting down in, in Calgary. And they had 10 sheets. And a group of guys from northern Alberta actually bought all 10. And at that point, it was right before the, uh, the boycott of the Briar back in the uh, late 90s. So I was kind of enemy of the state. So I wanted to uh, get five of those sheets. But, of course, they wouldn't sell them to me because, obviously, we we're going to use them. And they didn't want that. So I ended up talking to Fred Rose. I told him that uh, I had heard a from a little bird that they wanted about forty or forty-five thousand dollars for those five sheets of rocks. Okay, so I, I got a hold of Fred and said, "Listen, Fred, I'll give you the money. You got to phone the guys in <laughs> Alberta and pretend you need them for your bond spiel in <laughs> Newfoundland. And if you can manage to get them, then you can have the rocks for the Don Bartlett Classic for as long as you run it for free. But we need to get those rocks for the slams." So Fred, he he's a he's a character. So of course he phones up. I'm not going to say any names, but the guys in northern <laughs> Alberta, and uh, of course he played the perfect part. Got the rocks from them. We paid for them, and they were fantastic insert stones uh, in Westwinds. So you had you're right, Donnie B. The best rocks you could possibly get, and you got Tim Yule making the ice. So the ice was fantastic, and Fred Rose is sitting there with the best bond spiel in Canada. <laughs> it was a great setup. 
And we didn't have any fun either. You know, that was the, uh, <laughs> you know, it would have been better if uh, Carter Rycroft wouldn't have been dancing so crazy and took out uh, Kelly Law before the Olympics. Yeah, that was another story. <laughs> the very first Don Bartlett Classic, uh, I was talking with Carter and, and Don shortly after, and they said their bedtimes for the first three days were 7, 7, and 6 a.m. <laughs> and it surprised me, we never... We never got the uh, the morning draw. I don't know how that worked, but we never had a morning draw. Yeah. So, Don, a question for you. As this is early in the week, maybe putting on the spot here, but you guys are going well. Who do you think might be the other uh, couple teams that uh, could be down to the final playoffs on Sunday? Cooey's going really good right now. Never count out Guju, I'll tell you that. And uh, Manitoba's doing really good. Gunner's playing really well. Like, he... Uh, he has a different way of playing. I'll tell you, he knows the uh, the stats and everything. And he had a couple of times to get a, a pretty easy deuce, you know, like a 90% chance of getting your deuce. And nope, not going to do it. I'm going to hit the corner guard and roll into the ring, stuff like that. It's just uh, he wanted to be 100% sure he was scoring two when he had the hammer and, and hopefully to do it in an, an even end. So he's uh, he, he's all about stats and, and they're playing really well right now. I guess another team would be Saskatchewan. Dunstan, this is, of course, Tuesday, but he had two big wins in his last two games, which I think uh, would also suggest that he's uh, right there. Oh, yeah. There's six, seven teams, really. Um, this is who's hot at the end. It's uh, it's really tough. Like, we lost an early game, and we can't afford another another loss, I don't think, going forward till the, the playoffs. it's uh, This system is uh, you, you've got to take as few losses as you can in the playoffs. One thing I, I'd like to see changed – going forward, if it's possible, if we're going to keep with the 18 teams, is instead of going with four teams in each pool, go with three teams in each pool. Because the fourth team almost has no chance. So why are you putting a team in that has no chance of, of getting to the next round? That's the, the one thing I'd like to see changed. Donnie, in all the years, what's the big difference between the days you curled and uh, and the way that the teams curl now? Uh, what, what separates uh, the good from the great in your mind? You know, the fitness thing, right, is I, I know Kevin has mentioned this before that it was like that was never around when we were there. Warren was the only guy for 40 years who, who was kind of <laughs> into fitness. Uh, that's one of them. But what do you see there now, Don, between the days you played and what it takes now to be a team at a high level? A lot of practicing, a lot of getting to the gym, that's for sure. Um, the ice conditions are so much better now. Man, I was just... I was talking with Walchuk and he was, and the sweeping. That's one of the biggest things is the sweeping. Now, Walchuk was saying that if he had the sweepers that the guys have now, you wouldn't miss, wouldn't miss a shot. They're, they're so good. And the ice conditions are really good. I know the last, probably the last three years I played with Kevin, he made us go to the gym, Wally and I. We hated it. But he, Kevin said, if you don't go to the gym, you're not on the team. So it was pretty clear. Wally and I would go and, and we'd go for an hour, not an hour and two minutes, one hour and done. <laughs> and then Kevin, we'd see Kevin on the way. He'd, uh, he'd be finishes in his uh, workout by the time we were walking in. And Kevin was there for like an hour and a half, two hours, working out with the Oilers, just dripping wet. <laughs> and that definitely was not Wally and I. We, <laughs> we were in shape, but we were in Kevin Martin shape, put it that way. I got to tell a story here, Jimmy. Yep. So in the gym, so I'd be there and Don's bang on. I was there before I'd be there and I'd be just leaving when Don and Don would show up. So Walchuk would show up usually just before <laughs> Donnie B. And Donnie was a smoker. 
And he, so the guys would watch, the, the hockey players would go, they always got a kick out of it because Walchuk would be smoking and he'd have one last big drag before he went into the gym. And then go to the gym. And then, of course, they're expecting Donnie B. And I don't know if Donnie B knows this, but his nickname at the gym was Red Alert. <laughs> <laughs> here, come, here comes red alert. <laughs> so, uh, Walnut's kind of from another era, so you can't pick on him. <laughs> oh, it's fun to pick on Donnie. Uh, oh, that's good. Donnie, before we let you go, explain the bubble to us, how it, how it works for you. We've, we had Carrie Anderson on after congratulations to her after she won the Scotties, and we have an idea. Uh, her her story, by the way, is incredible. Go back and listen to the show about... Yeah, I, I listened to it. I, it's a good story. Yeah, how she almost didn't make it to the spiel in Calgary. How is it for you? Explain to us sort of from the time you get up till the time you go back to bed playing in the bubble. Well, we get up in the morning, have breakfast, and then uh, depending on what time you play, like we've had uh, we've had the one thirty draw a lot, so that's kind of nice. Just sort of sit around and watch the morning game if you want. Don't do much. Just get ready for the uh, time you have to leave. And then you got to um, check in. Do you, you do a twice daily check in to make sure you have no signs? Then you take your temperature. You scan on the way out. It's about a two or three minute drive to the arena. You scan as soon as you get there, and then you play your game, and then back to the hotel again. You don't you don't do much. It's great. I mean, there's, there's been no positive tests. I, I don't. We had our last one yesterday. I don't think there'll be any positive tests. So. It works really well. Everybody's, you know, doing what they're supposed to. You can't congregate with the other teams. You got to stay in your own team. Um, the first few days we had to stay in our own room. Couldn't even see your own teammates uh, outside of your room. Now we can at least get together for team meetings and stuff in, in one room. Do they put all your rooms together? Not like same floor and side by side to kind of keep to the protocol of, of social distancing? Yep. We have all, we have six rooms and we're all on both sides of the, uh, the hall all together. So uh, we can actually have the first couple of days we had opened up on our doors and, and we can at least talk to each other with our masks on. But uh, you're used to it now. It's, you know, it's a bubble and, and we knew this going in, listen to the girls. We had girls who were telling us what was going on and everything and, and the Scotties. So we knew going in and uh, it's, it's a different year, but it's great that the guys get to curl. That's the great thing. And, and it's great that people across Canada get to watch and across the world, actually. There's a lot of people in the States watch, too. Mm -hmm. uh, this is about halfway through the week in, in the Briar. Uh, Donnie, what, uh, what are you telling the team uh, that you're going to need going forward? Uh, do you have to make any changes from the first few days to the last few days of the spiel? No, they're, they're pretty well where they want to be now. I mean, I think Botcher was 99 last game. Guys in the middle were 89, and, and Carrick was in the 80s. It's uh, We can go a few points higher, but um, not much for Skippy. If Skippy keeps playing like that, I like our chances. Uh, he played this good last year, too, so hopefully uh, he can keep it up for one more game this year, and uh, we'll see what happens. What did you learn from Kevin all those years? J just the dedication. I mean, nobody practiced more than Kevin did. Nobody went to the gym more than Kevin did. Um, like I didn't do half what Kevin did, you know, it's just, uh, he would, he would throw a hundred, 150 rocks. I mean, I, I'd throw them there and back and I thought I was good. <laughs> and one thing I, uh, I got from Kevin too is, you know, he, he pressed practice guys, come on practice. You know, he could see that, you know, we have a spiel or two that we weren't at our best. And, uh, 
So I would go out on my own. I lived in Spruce Grove away from, um, from Edmonton. It's only a half hour drive, but I would practice there a couple of times extra. And boy, I really noticed that, wow, I'm making everything now. It's just a little bit of extra practice. And, and anybody listening, like if you have time and you want to be good, practice as much as you can. And the more you practice, the luckier you get. It seems the, the way it works. What's your most memorable moment? Yeah, you, you've played as a high performance curler your, your whole life. You, you know, you said you started at 13. Uh, when you look back, what's the biggest deal when you look back at your career? Winning my first Purple Heart. I think that's why um, a lot of people aren't very happy with the situation that everybody is given a Purple Heart this year. It's not the curler's fault that there's a pandemic. And, and you know, if we're going to have this, there's, there's two sides to the story, obviously. But uh, yeah, winning my first Purple Heart, winning my first Briar, playing in two Olympics. And one of my, my most cherished weekends was when we won the Continental Cup, the very first Continental Cup. Um, it was just a, a great, we had six different teams, two from the States and four from Canada, ladies and men's. And it was so much fun. And, and you know, we were down the whole week and we, we had a big surge on the last day to, to win it by a couple of points. And uh, it was a week I'll never forget. Kevin Warren, got anything else? Well, I just uh, want to appreciate Donnie taking the time because I know you're super busy trying to uh, get that botcher team across the finish line. And and uh, Donnie B, hey, thanks a lot, buddy, for uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, same for me, Don. Thank you for uh, joining us, and and good luck to you guys for the balance of the week. I wanted more dirt. I wanted more dirt on Kevin, Don, but you stayed low key. Well, that'll be in the book. Coach tells all. <laughs> <laughs> It's Jules's title, but I might steal it if I write my book. And I'm a coach now, so I can do it. <laughs> well, Donnie, good luck the rest of the way. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time, uh, like Kevin said, to, uh, to talk to us. And uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, of course, Kevin and I are in Alberta. So uh, we got a bias and are really pulling for you guys. So all the best, Donnie. Thank you, guys. I enjoy your show. What's up here, Donnie? You just came in my ear here when we were standing down. What do you mean you want to say something about me, Kevin and Warren? I'm scared. So number one, I'll talk with you. I'll start with you, Jimmy. Okay. And you wouldn't know this, but you know, when you're playing in the Briars, you need some downtime. There's a lot of pressure. And sometimes you're sitting in your room and you know what? I need a good laugh. So I'm gonna to go to the Briar Patch. Uh oh. I would go to the Briar Patch just to listen to you you were you were that good and you made me laugh and i'll always appreciate that well i was drinking back then okay those were the <laughs> those were the good ideas well the patch was was the spot yeah for sure and i will have to say the re one of the reasons it went so good uh over all the years in the briar patch is because the players and i only see that from curlers compared to other athletes that are, are so accessible so i'm sure i threw you on the on the screen when you were in there so thank you Thank you, Don. It was it was a riot. And now next to Warren, Warren gets a lot of heat for for his, his uh, stuff that he does and everything on on your inside curling thing. And <laughs> and you know a lot a lot of people don't understand how much Warren does. There's there's nobody I don't think in, in my lifetime that has done more for the game of curling than Warren Hanson. So um, I'm getting all emotional here. On behalf of all the curlers, Warren, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and uh, still trying to keep it going. So we can always do better and that's uh, my aim. And finally, Mr. Martin, 
I had the uh, the best. I always said I had the best seat in the car for 16 years playing with you. And we had uh, we had so much fun, and won so much. But the thing I'll take from it is the the uh, the fun that we had. We had so much fun, and thank you for that, Kevin. You bet. Well, you got to love that guy, uh, Kevin and Warren, uh, Donnie Bartlett. Uh, boy, I would have liked to hang with him in the days when, the, when he was curling in Gander because they have no fun, Kev, when you go down, the, down east. But what a wonderful guy, and clearly he was choked up at the end, and uh, so there's many sides to him, funny and passionate and uh, absolutely skilled. But it sort of, I was almost choking up myself, Kevin. Uh, what, what a great guy. Yeah, Donnie B's, a, he's, a, well, he's one of a kind, Donnie B, I'll tell you. And he, uh, he was all about having fun back in the day. He'd work hard, love to win, but the fun was the most important to Donnie B. And you can hear that in his voice. And yeah, a true gentleman of the game. And, and obviously really uh, an excellent coach as well as being one of the top curlers that have, has ever played the game. Warren, more guys like him are great for the game, aren't they? Yeah, I've always loved the two Dons, Don Bartlett and Don Walchuk, and are two guys that I've been associated with over the years. And uh, I always remember Don Bartlett from the 1992 Olympics. And, of course, Kevin and his team were there curling as a demonstration sport for the second time over in Albertville. And I always remember Don Bartlett. He was just beside himself. He was so overjoyed to be there and be part of that whole thing. And that always really stood out with me. You know, I've heard that a lot now about Walnut. Donnie Walchuk, and many stories about uh, Don Bartlett. There used to be a great show, British show called The Two Ronnies. Kev, can we do one called The Two Donnies and make a show out of it? Should bring the two of them on together. That would be quite a show. <laughs> that would be quite a show. Okay, boys, that's a wrap on another show. Uh, once again, we're very pleased uh, that uh, Sportsnet has stepped up and taken Inside Curling under their wing. Uh, the show's been growing exponentially and, and rapidly, and uh, we wanted to get this to the masses, and, and certainly the best way we can do it is through Sportsnet. So thank you very much to them. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Warren. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. No problem. <laughs>